Hello, and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. First off, thank you guys for your patience. Just as we were about to start, I had a power outage. So we had to frantically figure out what was going on. Happy New Year. I am Nomi Key Konst. Uh, thank you guys so much for your patience. It is so wonderful to be back with you. And what a crucial day for our country. And that is not an overestimation. It was extremely exciting this morning. I was on Instagram and I was seeing so many of my comrades and friends posting that they were making phone calls in Georgia and had spent hours over the weekend doing so. This is what I'm talking about. This is organizing. We got to focus on the big picture, the big fights, the critical wins. Those are my resolutions for 2021. And that is why here on the show, we spend time discussing strategy and tactics, why we delve into process, how to cultivate solidarity, nuance, building alliances. Right now, we can see two great illustrations of this. First, of course, is Georgia today. We want Medicare for all, a Green New Deal, a stimulus plan that actually gets relief to working people, right? Of course. None of that happens unless Democrats win both Senate races in Georgia today, both. And it is amazing how much a difference one vote makes. We saw that in this last election in Georgia itself. If Democrats win both Senate races, the balance will be 50-50 and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris gets to cast the tie-breaking votes. With Mitch McConnell, the fight is over before we start. With Democrats in charge, we have a fighting chance to win, win, actually win, Medicare for all, a Green New Deal, and real help for working people and poor people across this country. They will be forced to answer to us, something that Mitch McConnell doesn't have to do. He just ignores us. They'll be forced to answer to us like they were forced to answer to us with PAYGO in Congress. That will be when our differences with other Democrats are fair game. That will be the time we take on Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, and the actual votes that we need to move to win. But we need to get our agenda in the door, which is not open right now. It is locked. Mitch McConnell is peering through and laughing at us on the other side. So today it is crucial to vote for two Democratic senators from Georgia, which brings us to the other great example of being smart about the process. Congratulations to the squad and the House Progressive Caucus with their limited power and leverage. They got Nancy Pelosi to change the rules of the House so it will be much easier to pass Medicare for all, a Green New Deal, and a real stimulus. They got rid of this rule called PAYGO, for legislation on the environment, health, and other recovery steps from the pandemic. This is extraordinary. PAYGO was first adopted when George H.W. Bush was president. It stands for pay as you go. In other words, if you want to spend money now, say on building a clean power grid, you have to first cut something else or raise taxes. This strangles big ideas in their cribs. The big ideas we need passed now because of the COVID crisis and the economic crisis. Getting rid of PAYGO clears the way for investing in the future and rooting out the exacerbating injustices in every single community in this country. To pay for health and environment measures that pay back, not as we go, but after we spend. Without this change, Medicare for all and a Green New Deal would be killed by the rule before even getting a vote. No forcing the vote. It would be killed by a rule before even 
getting to a vote. Repealing PAYGO had to get done to make a vote on Medicare for All, a Green New Deal, and more stimulus relief possible in the House. And winning those two Senate seats in Georgia today is crucial to make passage in both House, both Houses of Congress possible. But at a crucial moment, there was a strategy out there to waste our time on a distraction and divide a divide and conquer tactic that preyed on hurting Americans who are rightfully invested in Medicare for all and in our progressives in Congress. But what was this for? I don't know. And I'm sure, you know, maybe we'll learn more in the coming weeks. I don't know why this tactic was used. It was a predatory tactic. But there was no access point in this tactic. And that was what was strange. We have no Medicare for all without the Senate and ridding PAYGO. So let this be our very first lesson of 2021. Learn the process. What's the second lesson of 2021? Well, how about if you are planning to threaten and extort a state election official, uh, make sure your call isn't getting recorded. Or maybe the election is that people don't change. Now, this is very definitely not a personal advice podcast. Who knows? Maybe there are guys out there who want to change. But Donald Trump absolutely has never changed. It was 45 years ago last month that he walked into the office of Richard Ravitch, Dick Ravitch, who was a state economic development official at the time in New York, and demanded a tax break for a hotel he was building. Ravitch remembers Trump raising his voice and threatening him. Sound familiar? It's the same Donald Trump who called the Georgia Secretary of State Saturday to demand he find enough votes to reverse Biden's victory in Georgia as if finding votes, not counting them, was just the most normal thing for a, a state official today. From the beginning to what we hope is now the end, this guy, Donald Trump, has been an anti-democratic thug, bullying his way to whatever he can take. His first real estate deal, he bullied his way through and used political favors to get there from his father. Tomorrow, he makes one more outrageous demand to overturn the electoral college vote because of allegations of voter fraud that he invented and were spread on his conspiracy theorist channels. Tomorrow's, tomorrow is that vote. Trump's behavior isn't so much shameful as utterly predictable. What's shameful are the Republicans in the House and Senate who are going along with this tomorrow and supporting his challenge to the electoral vote because they want some future with this right-wing populist movement that Trump has, has grown and, and built. They have embraced Trump essentialism, that it doesn't matter who you hurt or what you destroy so long as you get what you're asking for. Remember Donald Trump, when asked how he got a 40-year tax break on one of his projects, he replied, quote, because I didn't ask for 50. Yeah, it is all so grubby and soulless. And as the great Tom Robbins says, Donald Trump's core skill is monetizing politics. Keep that in mind. Who else is out there monetizing politics? He didn't invent that. It is a tactic that demagogues use. They prey on people's vulnerabilities and anger and pain and the circumstances and maybe even a lack of leadership and they swoop in. And they don't just swoop in for their agenda, they swoop in to build different coalitions. They swoop in to push forward the future of their demagoguery. 
demagogues have always existed and they've always used the same tactics. We have new technology out there. And of course that technology does make it easy to monetize anger and frustration and prey on folks. And the algorithm does so as well. And I'm excited to talk about that with our first guest today. We have a wonderful show. Uh, later in the show, we'll have Napoleon DeLegend and Joshua Con Russell. And then when we come back, just a quick second, we'll have Grafton Tanner, who writes in his new book that we are being strangled by a nostalgia for a better time that was never, that was never, and that the algorithm is pushing that. We'll be right back after this break. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Grafton, thank you so much for being patient. Uh, we have to tell you, I don't know if, if you got the alert, but our power went out <laughs> just as oh we gosh. were about to go live. 2021 is sure uh, testing us already. <laughs> it is, yeah, it is, it's true. Uh, so Grafton Tanner is the author of Circle of the Snake, Nostalgia and Utopia in the Age of Big Tech. Uh, he is also the author of Babbling Corpse, Vaporwave, and the Commodification of Ghosts. His, his work has appeared in the Los Angeles Review of Books and The Nation, among many other places. Grafton, this is such a timely book. Uh, the first few days of this election, or this election of this year, have shown quite a bit of chatter on the internet. And um, folks who have large audiences are, you know, making arguments that remind me of a different era, I, I gotta say. So I'm, I'm curious, what inspired you to write this book? Well, it came from two different threads of research that I had been doing at the time, one specifically on nostalgia, but then another that I was doing on, on big tech and trying to bridge the two together and look at the cultural effects of big tech. And that sort of was where the link with nostalgia came up. Actually, I read an article that the Atlantic wrote in like 2016, their tech issue about Tristan Harris and uh, who, who was one of the guys who made the social dilemma. Um, and this was back before this documentary, obviously. And um, he was being interviewed and saying things like, you know, I created all these technologies, Facebook or, you know, Google in particular, you know, and I was, and oops, I happened to like destroy the world a little bit and, and elect a fascist and whatnot. Sorry. And um, that just, I, that was honestly like the point at which I was thinking, you know, I, I need to, I want to write about this actually. So we had this, this segment booked out far in advance and I'm, um, I'm really kind of blown away because the last few days of, of the year, and really it's been going on for about a month or so, um, there's been increasing conversation about why on the left specifically about this um, force the vote tactic and the podcasters and the, the, the folks who are involved in backing it. And, you know, as somebody who has a, a YouTube show and is very familiar with the analytics of Google, um, I've talked about this on the show before, the audience that I have, uh, as great as they are, it is overwhelmingly male and under the age of, of say, 45, let's say. And I know that that is much larger. I mean, it could get into the 90s, 90% at least, for some of these other hosts. And, you know, I made a very, like, honest statement, like, why is this algorithm of, like, young males determining our political discourse right now on the left when there's so many other voices that should be included? And people say, well, that's an identity argument. But I'm like, no, no, no that's a fundamental algorithm argument. There was somebody at Google who was fired for exposing this, mm. uh, and she was in charge of literally fixing this problem. So uh, is this, it just seems baffling, like after the social experiment and after, you know, uh, a lot of revealing research and lawsuits at this point that the tech companies continue to al allow the algorithm to operate this way. 
Right. Well, and a lot of that has to do with who uh, is sort of creating the algorithm. A, a, a big myth of our time is that the algorithm or algorithms are totally neutral and that they're, you know, and that's why we can trust them to solve problems for us is they're unbiased. And that's just patently untrue. And there's plenty of research out there that, indi- you know, that reveals this. I, I can't recommend this book enough. Sophia Noble's Algorithms of Oppression Excellent book talks about race, uh, how it's pretty much encoded into the technologies we use every day. Um, and, you know, most of these guys are guys, white technocratic tech bros, if, if we can use that term. And, uh, you know, no. and they, all, <laughs> they only really know this very narrow worldview. And it's a sort of a STEM-based tech computer science worldview. So, of course, that kind of prejudice is going to show up in the code. So I'm curious, like, when you say nostalgia, how far back are we thinking? And, and is it conscious nostalgia or is it um, sort of just because there are just bros? Well, there's actually, there's, I, I sort of boil down three connection points between nostalgia and, and digital technology. And I, I should say, like, nostalgia as an emotion is really only a few hundred years old. 1688, in fact, is when the word shows up. So we can't even really say whether people in like ancient Rome were nostalgic. Some people say maybe that's the case, or maybe it's just a condition of modernity. I kind of think it's the second one. Um, In terms of digital technology, you know, the internet's a giant archive. I could be scrolling through Twitter or Instagram and not even be wanting to feel nostalgic. And suddenly somebody's posted something about like, you know, my 90s Nickelodeon childhood or something. And, I'm, and, and there it is, right? Same thing with anger. You're scrolling through Twitter. You see something that makes you angry. You weren't, I guess I wasn't planning on being angry today. And there it is. So the internet, giant archive, people post things from all of our history, cultural history, especially for anybody to see at any given time. There's also the fact that digital technology kind of creates this sort of logic of entrepreneurialism. You must always be on, always marketing. Look, that's just the breeding ground for nostalgia, which is a reaction to that kind of, you know, in the crucible, anxious sort of mentality. And then finally, there's just the fact that most of the culture we consume through Spotify, Netflix, any of these kinds of streaming platforms uh, helps to facilitate a kind of nostalgia because these companies gather tons of data on us as users and then pretty much project that data forward and say, if you like this, you're going to like this. And the second thing is pretty much just like the first. And so that's, those are the three main kind of connection points, if you will. So, so where does it go from being nostalgic of like the slime being dropped on the head at and on Nickelodeon <laughs> to uh, other forms of nostalgia? <laughs> You, you mean like more reactionary kind of like, yeah, well. Like political so, nostalgia and especially if it's nostalgia among, I mean, you know, when you're saying that this is the audience, like for instance, let's use this argument of, of being a YouTube show where it's all like white men, like I'm going to guess like majority of white men are going to have different nostalgia than say I have or someone who grew up in a, in a, in a different community or a different country. Absolutely. Well, so if we want to use two terms that get thrown around with nostalgia because nostalgia is if it's an emotion we can agree that it's an emotion you know it could be used in unproductive or productive ways just again like anger um and so svetlana boym was this uh, nostalgia scholar early 2000s she wrote you know there's reflective nostalgia which is can be kind of productive kind of melancholic you're wistful you're yearning about the old days but that's kind of it and then there's restorative nostalgia where you go no that's not it i'm going to make i'm going to take the next step an action step, we got to get back to the origin point. We got to make things good again because things are so bad in the present. Okay. 
So I think that over the past 20 years or so, this second restorative strain has kind of won out, you know, because it's, it's more easily commodified. You could, you know, a company could sell you the thing to get you back there, so to speak. And then politicians can appropriate it too. They could say, hey, let's mobilize a lot of people. If you believe in me, we'll get back there to that point. We'll go and, and remake things uh, great again. And this was Donald Trump's tactic pretty much. Fascinating. And how much of this is, is you know, the, the, there's an emotion of nostalgia. And then you mentioned there's like anger also. Um, why doesn't the, like, why doesn't happiness play as much of a role, at least on the political side? If you're going to say, you know, Donald Trump and he throw back to a, a time, make America great again. Um, why doesn't happiness have that same kind of, of reaction on folks or effect? Well specifically about nostalgia, you know, the nostalgic person looks around and says, something is not right. Something's been lost and I feel it. And, you know, then the next step is where things go wrong. Like what did get lost, you know, and, you know, people then suddenly start to yearn for like the era of Jim Crow or, or something heinous like this, right? Or not, they, they yearn for a different period. It could just be like their childhood or something. But so this sort of dissatisfaction with the present there's a, there's a quicker link from that to a kind of anger that can be more easily mobilized. Um, is that, is that kind of like what you're. Yeah. It's just interesting. Cause I mean, you know, we, there's so much conversation about like technology, Twitter, social media being anger machines. I mean, they're just like, like if one person is nostalgic and angry about, you know, missing the Jim Crow era, and then you have people of color being angry at that, it, it like feeds off of each other. And then, and, and doesn't that kind of affect the algorithm as well? Well, it's, it's generated by the algorithm essentially, because look, I mean, the social media business model for the past decade, uh, the one that made it, people like Zuckerberg extremely prof, uh, wealthy um, is to try to, you know, get sustained attention, um, get your eyeballs on the screen, at any, you know, all the time, every day for hours on end. And one way that they do that, or one way you can easily do that is by trying to get people really angry and outraged. And uh, then they're looking and they're scrolling. That's, it's really effective, but nostalgia is also just as effective. They both sort of um, hold your attention where you really want more. And the more attention that's paid to, you know, Twitter, Instagram, social media, what have you, uh, the more money that's generated thanks to advertising revenue. This is, this is a, this is a business model. It doesn't have to be the business model, but it is. How conscious are like uh, all the tech companies? I mean, we, we have a sense of Facebook and, and their work with Cambridge Analytica, but how conscious is like Twitter or, or Amazon, or I, 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 I don't know how far this goes. Um, they're all pretty much using the same business model. And so, uh, you know, they can signal their consciousness all they want, but, but they are, you know, kind of the logical result of this sort of, you know, unfettered, deregulated tech capitalism. So and this is one of the issues I have with the social dilemma is a lot of these ex-technocratic guys uh, were coming out saying, you know, uh, we can just press a, if only we could just press a button and then the whole thing disappears. And this actually happens at the end of the documentary in like a hypothetical scenario. It's just impossible because big tech is capitalism at this point. It, 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 capitalism relies on it, you know? Uh, so their, their consciousness can only go so far. It, it really has to be, um, there has to be some regulation in place for them to change, I think. And, so there's a lot of talk about this, right? And, and, 
coming out of the Trump administration, but it's not going away. And, and there are, we'll get to some of the other tools that are out there that are kind of exacerbating it, but um, what regulation is possible at this point? Like, what can you do? I mean, you're not going to shut it down. How, is it, is it state takes over Facebook or. I mean, I'm in support of like a, a publicly owned um, a, a public option for social media. I mean, so that, that would, that would obviously require breaking it up completely. Um, Force and, the vote. No, sorry. Well, yeah, <laughs> I had to um, go there. <laughs> but that's, that's going to be pretty impossible because, you know, there, the idea that like the private sector just, you know, just flourished and then the state withered in its shadow or something, look, they, they work in tandem. I mean, that's just kind of sort of how neoliberalism works is that, the state pretty much gives the permission through deregulatory laws for something like big tech to even get as, as big as the companies are, you know, I mean, Amazon can't get this big without the permission to do so, you know? Um, and, and so, uh, you know, until the day comes that, that there's some, some monopoly busting legislation on the table, uh, they're going to keep run. You're going to keep running the show. I mean, but even if there's monopoly busting legislation, it's just, it's, it's like, it, it's so big now. It's how do you break apart Facebook? How do you break apart Amazon, which is just literal and, and Google, of course, hi Google, <laughs> which is just taking over a little, literally every aspect of our lives. I mean, Amazon, uh, people's server, you know, they're using their servers. Um, it's, it's hard to even say, you know, listen, I'm, I want to be out of this. I, I will no longer use Facebook. That's fine. Like the only reason I use Facebook is because it's a directory for me now. It's literally it. It's like, and, and our show goes up there, but personally I use it because I don't know how to reach my friends and family anymore. Yeah. You got to get off. Listen, I, and, and let me tell you, I'm like the last person to tell someone to take like a digital detox because I mean, you know, I have friends of mine who are there, they run their own companies or whatever. They have to use Facebook, you know, and they hate it, but it's the only way they're able to get word out or whatnot. I can attest that not being on it or while I was on it, I felt pretty miserable. Um, but look, you're absolutely right. It, it, these things are entrenched, you know, um, and they're they're international. So, it, to, you know, if, if we're not going to try to, or there's no way to deregulate, um, um, regulate big tech and try to break it up tomorrow, then the only way that I know how to support, uh, you know, a resistance against them would be supporting the someone like the like the Alphabet Union that that was announced yesterday, you know, and and trying to. Um, you know, fight for some, some better standards, but, but then again, and, and, you know, this is a problem again with, I'll keep going back to the social dilemma guys, but this is a problem with their critique also is that they pretty much just ignore the violent supply chains that prop up big tech. If you want to have a, a, a sustained movement against them, it has to be international. It has to include the people in, you know, in China at Foxconn who manufacture the, the products and, and so forth. And, and, and they're not, you know, they're not, they're not mentioning them. That's fascinating. So, so in terms of the supply chain, like what, what would it be? Boycotting Foxconn, boycotting uh, some of these 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 companies in the supply chain that are overseas, or even if they are overseas and they're exploiting workers, or or literally extracting resources from communities that um, have no choice. Uh, how how do you have a deeper conversation about that? Um, even with a small unionization, I mean, this is fantastic what happened with the Alphabet Union, but um, and it's it's a great signal as to where hopefully we're going. Um, but, but even in a union, like how do you submit those demands? Well, so to step back a little bit, one of the first things that has to happen is that there has to, we have to dispel this notion that, 
you know, the, the, the technology is like magic and it just kind of comes out of the sky from the tech wizards on the stage who give it to us this great gift of technology or whatever. And, and that it, it just appears, you know, we don't, we go, you know, to the Apple store uh, and we can't see sort of what was behind the creation of the, of the phone or the, or the laptop or whatever, all the stuff that we use all the time, nor can we see like the cables that run underneath the ocean that assures that we're able to like get on zoom right now or, or something. Um, and, and so being able to like try to get that in the public's ear a little bit, uh, which again, I think is one of the reasons why I have such a problem with the social dilemma is that is, you know, enormous platform that documentaries on Netflix, and yet none of that is talked about. In fact, they even talk about technology as a kind of magic. It's just really problematic. So being able to, being able to get that in, into the public conversation, you know, don't forget about where these things come from. Um, not only, and also the environmental impact of tech, that's a crucial first step that I, I would like to see that before anything else. I, I just read the book, How to Hide an Empire, um, which talks about uh, the American empire and, and how we've been, you know, since our origins, uh, we've been extracting, we have colonies, we've had colonies and still do sort of all over the world. But there was this one, uh, it was really interesting is, you know, 80 years ago, we had a very public conversation in our country about this literally bird poop. <laughs> We, we, we had a colony because there was this type of bird poop that was so valuable and, and rubber is another example. And it wasn't until we were able to pull off of those um, and, and manufacture them on our own with plastic, not, not a great you know, alternative, that um, we were able to ex, you know, extract and, and not, not colonize certain, I'm giving a very basic overview, um, oh, yeah. parts of the world. But there was a very public conversation about it. That's what I'm trying to say. It was on the cover mm -hmm. of, the, of all the papers. The public was very involved. You had lawmakers engaging in it. And it's just so interesting how there's such a disconnect now. And I, I think that's, that's a really important point you make because we have shifted so much in society that we don't even recognize like how much of our lives are, are continue to be built off of um, not just hurting the environment, but ripping apart communities and um, and 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 exploiting people all over the world. I mean, that's what the trade deals are about. But through the tech lens, that's that's a very important point. Yeah, and I I think that the the reason that we had pretty much a decade, like the late two thousands up until about the election of Donald Trump slash Cambridge Analytica, you had about a decade of. Um, people like Steve Jobs on, on stage and, and people giving TED Talks and that, that whole genre of extemporaneous kind of speaking about technology in a way where it's just like really magical and for, it's for you. And, you know, it's this, it's, I mean, like the iPhone is an amazing invention, but the way that it was talked about, you know, you, you have to go back and do a lot of rhetorical um, surgery, if you will, to try to get people to think differently about it. So where do you see the future going? Um, how do we uh, not just regulate and break apart these tech companies, but where do you see, if, if that doesn't happen, how bad could it get? I mean, I, I feel like this is a moment, a telling moment, not just with the 2016 election, but um, you know how you now have like foreign governments that have invested in like troll farms to kind of break it, recognizing how broken the system is, at least here. The EU is pushing back in some ways, but but where does the future of our American, let's say, political discourse go when you have uh, platforms that are just, you know, they lack accountability or interest in actually doing anything about this? 
Well, I think you're going to probably see um, more of this rightward drift that you're experiencing and you're kind of seeing across the world right now with, you know, people like Orban and Hungary and Bolsonaro around Brazil and, and people like this, you know, um, where there is such outrage generated at like the individual level by using something like Twitter or whatever that scales so quickly to a group of people who want to alleviate it by any means necessary um, that they will put their faith in people who will, uh, who will, who will promise to do that, you know? Um, so, and I, but I also think that because we're entering into the the 2020s with some of these ex-technocrats being the loudest maybe not the loudest but the most distributed voices of of tech criticism we're gonna have to deal with them for a while because they will be the ones who say sorry i created facebook and destroyed the world at least i'm not mark zuckerberg but i did help create it now listen to me i'm going to tell you how we're going to fix it and we're going to do it by i'm going to make you buy new apps and new phones and this and that you know and that there's no guarantee that that's going to create any different attention economy than the one that we're already in. Um, and so without, uh, you know, trying to look to other voices, like the people who have been studying this far longer than Tristan Harris and the social dilemma guys have been, uh, it's going to be pretty crucial. They're going to basically monetize whatever the solution is. Yeah. They'll say There's that, no you know, without doing that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not Mark Zuckerberg. So you can trust me and then kind of become Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> How dystopian. All right. Final question is how dystopian are this? <laughs> yeah. I, you know, um, I have hope though, like seriously, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's dark. I mean, everyone can kind of agree that the future is sort of hard to envision at this point. And that's another reason why nostalgia tends to be so potent. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, in addition to having this sort of right, continuing rightward drift or whatever, being able to have a, a, a you know, sustained progressive movement against tech, not just against, you know, I, I mean, it's got to be pointed against big tech, um, I think is going to be uh, important. And you'll probably start to see it over time. Um, you've seen like a lot of harassment of lawmakers, like the squad, women of color in the last uh, few, I mean, always, I shouldn't say that Fox News, the right wing, QAnon, all these places have done this for a while. But um, you're seeing it in the last few weeks with like the a version of the left, um, I'll say. And my hope is that they take it amongst themselves because they're being personally affected by this, their safety is being affected, that they actually call for for regulation and that 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 those in Congress um, who are feeling the effects in their face, right, um, push back. And, you know, perhaps we'll get there. I don't know. Yeah, that's the hope. Grafton Tanner, so interesting. Go check out his book. Thanks for your patience today uh, with our, our tech issues. Speaking of, um, you can check out his book, The Circle of the Snake, Nostalgia and Utopia in the Age of Big Tech. This is a very important book to read in 2021. So we appreciate your work. Thank you. Take care. All right, guys, we'll be right back. Uh, after the break with our great panel, we have Napoleon DeLegend and Joshua Kahn Russell. We'll be back in two seconds. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Hey, uh, because of the power outage, I haven't done this yet. Are you smashing that like? Get in that chat. Click those likes. Make sure that the trolls aren't out because we know they're out right now. Um, 
To all of our subscribers, I haven't done this and I, I really want to express our gratitude to you because you have been so incredible over the last few weeks in particular, during our break, uh, during all the tension online, I've gotten messages, emails, got a care package. It was really lovely. Uh, we love you and, and especially our community because everybody's really shown up for each other. And I think... Um, through these moments of tension, you know, this is how it's, uh, I'm going to ask Joshua in a second, but, you know, movements are often uh, picked at and especially in vulnerable times where unifying leaders are, are, are no longer the unifying leaders, meaning Bernie is no longer, um, Bernie is no longer our presidential nominee. So we are grateful to you. Make sure to click subscribe. Make sure to join us on Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. Happy New Year, Josh McCon Russell, Napoleon the Legend. Haven't seen you in a bit. Happy New Year. New Year. All right, so you got a new you... setup, Napoleon. Yeah. Pimped it out good. a little bit. Fancy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, so I wanna I wanna start off just with um that question, which Without getting into the, the the back and forths, right? We know we 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 know the arguments, right? I think I'm really. Um, th their history shows us that we've been in these moments before, where movements that have grown have become threats to the status quo to oligarchs, where they have been divided, whether it's intentional or there's just infighting. But I think most of the time, um, and both of you I know can speak on this, there is actual intentional. Uh, goals to prey on people's anger and vulnerability and frustration and exhaustion. Uh, this year has been very exhausting. The last five years have been very exhausting for folks and pit us against each other. And that is why that word solidarity is so important and building alliances is so important. So I, I want to start off with Joshua because you, your work is in movements and specifically addressing these kinds of tactics. What's your take on right now and what can we do about it? Well, the focus with my organization, the Wildfire Project, is on the culture of the left itself to make us less vulnerable to that kind of thing. So, for example, you know, I, I came up in a political milieu, and I think this has been largely the case on the American left for the last 20 years, where um, if you have a fundamental stance of not having power and not really even being able to imagine having power, <laughs> then you want to be able to exercise some kind of agency um, because it, it, it's gratifying to, and, and so we, we, so what I mean by that is like I come out of the climate justice movement, for example, and all of the infighting, the circular firing squads, all of the culture of that was the result of disempowerment. If I don't have the power to stop the CEO of Exxon from driving a pipeline through indigenous communities, and I, and I really want to punch the CEO of Exxon, but he's so far away and I can't even imagine being like operating in that same terrain, well, at least I can punch the person next to me for only agreeing with me on 99% of the things. And so, you know, the desire to go after AOC or whatever, you know, it, it's because she's accessible, because she'll respond to you that doesn't mean that she's the most strategic target to be pressuring. And uh, so to me, a lot of that behavior comes from a fundamental um, ambivalence about power, a lack of understanding of the terrain that you're on. And I think, you know, the, the culture of the left, certainly the movement left that I came in, we have a hard time distinguishing between enemies and, and rivals. Uh, so we don't know how to actually, you know, like a rival is someone who you disagree with and you try to out-organize them. 
because politics is about organizing and uh, shifting the, the the terrain around you. An enemy is like your target, who you're trying to take down, and you employ different kinds of tactics. And so, if all you're doing is being driven by a kind of um, disempowered anger, you're not going to be able to see with clarity about how to um, both engage your comrades who you might disagree with uh, in your organization, let alone politicians who you're trying to pressure, uh, let alone being able to see the, the terrain clearly. So part of what we do is try to support organizations to shift that culture of disempowerment so that we're less vulnerable to that kind of um, uh, those outside tactics that you're talking about, whether it's from a boss trying to bust a union uh, or whether it's, you know, some of the dynamics that are playing out now. I mean, I think the dynamics are the same. The tactics are the same. It, it, is it a union buster? Is it a, is it an oil company? Um, is it a foreign, uh, you know, government? I mean, there's, these are issues that we have to be very conscious of as a movement. And it's really fun to be part of a movement. And it's really fun to show up at rallies. And the adrenaline can be pumping and you see your friends out there and you're all riding highs. You're, you know, you're doing all these, it, it's really emotional and, and it's powerful. Um, but there's, there seems to always be this moment in these movements where suddenly it goes from being like fun and, and exhilarating and like you're actually making progress to, whoa, wait, what? <laughs> like, why are we in this fight now? What happened? Napoleon, you know all about this. Uh, I see you smiling. Go for it. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think it's important. It, it's always important to keep our eyes on a prize and also not to give anybody too much importance. You know what I'm saying? It's like, it's, 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 it's a whole movement. We, it, we are going to have some disagreements and this and that and the third. And, um, as soon as we start giving somebody too much power, because um, whether it's a YouTuber or whether it's somebody in the inside too, there's only so much everybody can do. But uh, I think it's important to just keep moving the ball down the field. And it's also important uh, the way we the, the way we address each other. When, when we were behind, like let's say, like you said, behind Bernie. There was that energy. There was that fire. There was that 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 common goal. And I think now there's a lot of confusion going on, and and everybody's trying to find their bearings. And sometimes some people are trying to take advantage of that. And for for I don't think may or may not be the right reasons. I don't think it's for the with the right intent. And I think it's important. We have so many things at stake, and 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 we do have a path towards making some gaining some ground and making gains. And they're trying to make it seem like we're losing everything when I don't think that's the right way of looking at the situation right now. Um, I want I want to shift gears for a second, because speaking of, of winning or losing, uh, we have the Georgia race today. And Joe Biden argued that the Georgia Senate race, if won by the Democrats, will determine the future of the two thousand dollars stimulus checks. Uh, but of course, you know. Vice President uh, Harris opposed the checks in the Senate. So where does where do you think that Biden really stands and how do you think this is going to play out in the Senate? Like, is this is this just a play to get people to vote? Or, you know, if we win the Senate, if the Democrats, <laughs> Joshua. Yeah, I mean, this is a little outside of my wheelhouse, but I, I, I will say that, you, you know, I, I listened to Biden speak in Georgia yesterday and um, he he went out of his way to uh, basically say, set this up to say, well, these are extraordinary circumstances and this isn't going to be a precedent that people should expect money from the government. It's not inconsistent with neoliberalism to choose to give people $2,000 checks, uh, $2, checks in a pandemic. It's also a promise that's immediately 
it's it's a, it's going to happen immediately, <laughs> um, whether 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 uh, they break the promise or not. Yeah. And so, you know, I mean, obviously, you, you can't trust it until it happens. But the fact that that uh, Harris voted against it doesn't doesn't necessarily, to me, uh, signal that they they wouldn't go for it. What do you think, Napoleon? Is this, is this just a game? I think Harris Harris could easily change her mind on that. I mean, <laughs> I want to believe that Biden is like so adamant that for him to to to, to do that and let let's say there's a victory and, and for that not to happen, it would kind of be crazy even even on the Democrats as a whole for for for, for the next two years down the line. It's like their their credibility is on the line right now. That's ultimately it. It's like their credibility is on the line. It's already so close. Um, we know that there's going to be senators that we're going to have to pressure, like Mansion, like Cinema, possibly Ossoff, um, maybe a few more. But we got to get there first. Like we're not even at that point yet. I mean, we could primary them too. We still aren't at that point yet where we have that momentum to be able to to win these 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 very expensive primaries in the Senate and governorships. But we're getting there. We're really getting there. Um, I want to. Oh my God, this literally. I, I want to play the whole thing. Because it is something that I, my jaw dropped, and I think it's part of a trend with the right right now. They have these like superhero videos. Um, can we play that clip of of the new congresswoman? Because they like to be called congresswomen on the right, not congress members. That's what Fox News told me. I'm Lauren Boebert, and I approve this message. Cut. That's a wrap. I'm Lauren. I'm a newly elected congresswoman from Colorado. Even though I now work in one of the most liberal cities in America, I refuse to give up my rights, especially my Second Amendment rights. I will carry my firearm in D.C. and in Congress. This caused outrage from Democrats in the media. Why? It's our job in Congress to defend your rights, including your Second Amendment, and that's exactly what I'm here to do. In D.C., of all places, we should be encouraged to practice our rights. So forget what you... Okay, you have a lot of rights when you go to Congress. Uh, yes, you defending the Second Amendment, my right... Um, I don't know if there's any militias in Congress or not, but you also have the ability to declare war on people. I mean, what the... Joshua's face. <laughs> All right, let's I hadn't seen that before. That, that was amazing. Oh, that was it amazing. Gets it gets better. Let's keep playing. Oh my God. Oh my God. This is hilarious. Oh, it's, it gets better. You hear in the fake news, here are the real reasons why I choose to defend myself in our nation's capital. I'm a woman and a mother of four. I choose to defend my family with all of the force the Constitution provides. D.C. is one of the top 10 most dangerous cities in our country. Wow. It's like garages. She's literally just in an alley with garages. Being a member of Congress is pretty basic. I don't go to work in a motorcade or armored car. I don't get police escorts everywhere I go. I walk to my office every morning by myself. I walk across the street. As a 5-foot-tall, 100-pound woman, I choose to protect myself legally because I am my best security. You can keep us her on screen. So, so she's like, I walk to work. I walk 
from the Russell Building across the street to Congress, or I take the tunnel that's underground. By the way, those streets are closed off, and there's all the two million dollar townhouses at least average around that neighborhood. And she like she was like, oh, I need to make it look slummy, so I'm going to go into the garage alley. That's <laughs> all right. Keep playing. Well, and she's also. I grew up in the D.C. area, like, it, it's gentrified as hell right now anyways, but even though there's nothing going on in that part of town where you feel that, like you're about to get something like that, it's not that part of town. And the way she's describing it, I mean, like, it's an obvious dog whistle. She's like, I need to protect myself from Black people. We're in D.C. It's dangerous for a white woman. City. Yeah. City. Okay, let's get to that in a second, because I have a theory behind this. Let's keep playing my best security. One of the challenges of working in D.C. is people here don't understand how we live in real America. The Second Amendment is part of our lives. Gun ownership is cherished, and it makes our little town safer. As a young woman working late nights at a restaurant, I learned real fast how important it is to defend myself. After a violent incident outside my business, I took advantage of Colorado's open carry laws and began to carry at work. My waitresses asked if they could open carry too. And now Shooter's Grill has mandatory firearm training and target practice available for my staff, most of whom are young women. Educated law-abiding gun owners are the safest people in America to be around. So when anyone comes in to limit the rights and safety of my family, I'll tell them exactly what this mom thinks. I am here to say, hell no, you're not. I have four children. I'm five foot zero, 100 pounds. Cannot really defend myself with a fist. So all you're going to do is restrict law-abiding citizens like myself. So this is why I choose to defend myself and my family. Not only is it my right, but it's a right I was sent here to protect from Rifle Colorado. So if you see me in D.C., say hi. You're safe with me. That was amazing. <laughs> okay, so I have a theory about D.C., and I'm so glad that you put up the map of D.C., uh, Dorsey. There simultaneously, there's this like Republican effort right now to call out DC statehood and link it up with a bunch of other fear tactics. So like Democrats want DC statehood and they also want to cut your free speech and they also want this because DC statehood isn't enough. Like I don't think most Republicans would be like, well, why, what's wrong with DC state? They don't understand. They don't have a position on it, but we all know what they're doing with DC. They're trying to paint DC. And all the all the cities of America, like top 10 most dangerous cities in the country. American cities are safer than they've ever been right now. There, there's mm-hmm. a little bit of a surge since COVID, but they're literally safer than even top 10 worst of the of an era where cities are safer than ever. It's racist. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's so much to unpack. Well, I mean, yeah, I'm still I'm still absorbing that. I mean, the, the whole thing is it's it's cartoonish and it's also, I bet you, really effective and compelling for its audience. I mean, it's really well done. I mean, there, there's just the, the other piece that's interesting is her pivot from I, I think earlier on, she implied she was taking her weapon into the Congress building. Mm-hmm. Right. And so and then moved to be like, I need to take, you know, protect myself uh, walking down these mean streets and not even like. I I don't know. I don't know that that was I also I just want to mark the the 
intro was brilliant. It was like, so she's standing in front of a green screen and it's like she's filming the real ad that is the like fake postured teleprompter right. version. And then that ends. And then this is the real her with the music that right. it's like, and that's really smart. I, uh, and compelling and draws you in. It's, well, there's it, like a I, tactic right now that Dan Crenshaw has been doing these videos, like these Avengers videos or whatever it is, like superhero videos where he's jumping out of the, like they're, they're, they're leaning in on Hollywood, like trying to make themselves out to be Hollywood heroes, this new generation. Yeah. She's only 34. And Dan Crenshaw is pretty young too. I mean, oh, what Napoleon an interesting Hitler. evolution of Trump's template. Sorry, Napoleon. Yeah. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, just, I mean, like moving from, you know, reality TV star to this sort of stylized Hollywood thing. It's, it's in the same trajectory. It's in the same canon. <laughs> I, I was going to say, it looked like, like, like a reality TV show you might watch on Netflix or something that I, I would want to tune into. Because like I said, it's, it, the production value is great. It, it looks good. And she's talking to people that are so far, probably so far, her audience is so far detached from D.C. and places like that that it may be believable to them. You can tell, you, you tell them anything about what's going on in D.C., whereas you, you, can't, you can't carry a, a gun outside in your pants walking down D.C. That's the thing. It's like, that's a line itself. Illegal because in D.C. Or elected, yeah. She wouldn't even do that because if she would, she would get arrested or there would be a whole bunch of cameras and it would cause a scene, but I doubt she would even do it. She might get arrested for that. I mean, she congressmen should. and women she get should. arrested for Why things. She's walking around with a gun without it. She's not a police officer. <laughs> no, it's and it's and I don't think they're going to let her in. Um, I mean, you do get to pass through security, but man, I mean, what's also interesting about her? I'm just reading a little bit about her uh, background. She used to be Democrat until you know her she's movie career, probably. Um, <laughs> she actually lived in Aurora, Colorado. It's not where she lives now, but Aurora, Colorado. Are you kidding me? And she has the nerve to lean in on, on, on her gun rights. And that's kind of how she made her career. She has this restaurant in which she, uh, this is insane. She, um, in this restaurant, like everybody, as she mentioned, she allows them to take guns into the restaurant and, and then it, here's something that happened in September, 2019. This is a part of the video, uh, Beto O'Rourke, was at an Aurora Town Hall uh, meeting during the 2020 presidential campaign over his proposal for the gun buyback program. It is a very important issue in Aurora, as you may know. And she got up and said, hell no, you won't take our guns. And that kind of began her, her career as being this advocate. I mean, she's like the new Dana Lash for the NRA, uh, which is an interesting take on this too, because it, I... I NRA is being investigated right now and is going to be dismantled, likely. I'm really curious, like, what the evolution of the right-wing gun-toting Republican is going to be in Congress without that massive lobby, massive lobby in their ear at all times, ears at all times. <laughs> She's like, screw this. I'm leaving Aurora and moving to Rifle. There I'm going to belong. Is that, that's a real, does she really live there? Did you catch that in the ad? She's like coming straight to you. From I mean, it's Rifle called Gun. Rifle. I'm trying That's... to, I'm, I'm learning so much about her and her Wikipedia page. Yeah, she literally, a restaurant Rifle, her town is named Rifle. Wow. I mean, okay, here, here's what I, I, there's there's a lot of, obviously I think this is ridiculous, but there's a lot that I respect about this ad and how effective it is. But the, the layeredness, she's like, I'm going to talk about guns as a metaphor, as a cultural issue. Talk about it as the name of where I come from. I'm going to use it to like repudiate DC itself of the people who live here and Congress and say, and like, low-key threaten to shoot members of congress and like i mean there's just like and like use that all as a way to talk about 
right. It's yes. smart. What did you say, Napoleon? I said, and gender too. The fact that she's yes. a yeah, woman yeah. and everything like that. She's a gun-toting woman and such, such an American, quote-unquote, message. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, they might tackle her. She's walking in the tunnel underground into the Senate, to the Congre- congressional chambers. Oh, yeah, okay. Unreal. This is this is really just, um, and I just found out that she has expressed support for Q, but later said she's not a follower of Q. So it's, you know, because she wants a future in Congress. This is the new, um, the, the anti-squad, whatever that group is called. This is this is what what's coming for us guys. This is the future of right wing America. Um, all right, guys. I was about to say she studied a subject really well because she knows exactly what buttons to you know to push. I always find it interesting when they go from being Democrats to Republicans. That's always a fascinating um, turn in life. All right, uh, very grateful to you. Grateful to you, and looking forward to uh, much more in twenty twenty one. I'm sure we'll have a lot more of these videos to analyze. Can I say one thing when you were talking to Grafton Tanner about uh, nostalgia and brought up slime, it brought me right back to the nineties. That's when TV was empowering. You know, they were like, you have a choice. You can take the pie slide or you can get slimed. What would you do? Um, So it was early cancel culture. Shout out to the nineties kids. Yeah. (laughs) That's us. Joshua Conn Russell, Napoleon Legend, thank you so much. And we will see you next week right here. And to everybody in the chat, ooh, we've got a lot to go through. Um, first off, actually, let me give a shout out to our book club members. We just started our book club. Um, it's a it's a New Year's resolution for me to read four books a month. So I thought, why not encourage everybody else to join me on this journey? But our book club uh, started this week. We are going to have our first episode up. Book club members will be receiving their first books very soon. It's the first of the year, so it was a little bit logistically uh, tough. But our first book is about Thomas Paine, and we are going to be uh, speaking with our author of our first author, which is Professor Harvey Kay, who just happens to be in the chat right now. But go check out the book club. You can be a member uh, for one book a month, two books a month, or four books a month at patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. I'm going to give a little, a few shout outs out here. We have V Chacon 505. Did you hear about Gary Chambers running for Congress in Baton Rouge? He's a perfect ad to the squad. Love the show. Thank you so much. Yes, we uh, covered that on the majority report today, the ad. If you haven't checked out that ad, it's going viral on the internet. It's so powerful. I teared up the Gary Chambers that he's running for Congress in that special election to replace Cedric Richmond, who is now part of the, um, the administration. Anna Maxa, $3. Thank you so much. Giving a little to Nomi Key, but I also joined her patron. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. You know, that was something I noticed um, right away is there's definitely some like shenanigans happening online. Um, if you haven't like researched the troll armies and, and the troll farms, like that is a real thing. I know people go like, ah, that's an excuse. No, it's a real thing. I mean, you, 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 you sit there and you report their tweets and then suddenly the fake accounts go away. They're, they're, they're either off of your Twitter or you get a notice from Twitter saying that this account um, was not real or for whatever, you know, this is a real operation that's going on. They have them here in the States too. Um, the right wing uses them. I think people on our side use them too, uh, but this was a tool in the 2016 election. It's definitely happening right now to disrupt conversation, to make people feel like and think that there's a larger movement um, or people who think that way and also to convince people that it's safe to take this, this path. But the reality is, and, and, and I say this because our Patreon has stayed strong and I'm really grateful to you guys because it's tough. Um, these tech companies do not have a lot of oversight. 
And it's important that we have a strong community. And that's what I'm really proud of with our show. I'm really proud of being part of the Majority Report community is that the folks who are engaged, who are patrons, who subscribe, who follow us are really interested in nuanced conversations. And so I'm really grateful to you guys for sending us that love. And of course, our moderators. I, we couldn't do this without Mini Docs for working the algorithms and Bob and Shokin and the Orb for keeping the live chat troll-free, as we mentioned. So thank you so much. Make sure to send us your addresses. I'm going to say it out loud because we want to send you some swag. So I have to say that. Send us your addresses. Send them to Dorsey. Uh, he'll be reaching out. Prairie Fire Kowalski from Nebraska. Thank you for the love. Uh, we And a cup of coffee from Kowalski. Thank you. Because that's what the cost of a cup of coffee is. Much love to everybody. We will see you tomorrow. Hopefully our power will be on three o'clock Eastern. Join us right here.